following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on what you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals during our spring Black Friday sale, like 19-ounce Bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for $10. And pick up five bags of Scott's mulch in store only for just $10. Whatever's on your list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417 while supplies last. Not valid in Alaska or Hawaii. Scott's offer valid in store only. See store for details, U.S. only. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Before we get going, I have a quick favor to ask. We need you to fill out a short survey. Just go to podcastone.com slash my survey or visit podcastone.com and click on the survey banner. The survey is completely anonymous and your responses will help us match the right advertisers to the right show. If you've filled out a survey in the past, we thank you, but we still need you to do it again. With your help, we can keep the Forbes interview free to download and with minimal ads. Again, that's podcastone.com slash my survey or please visit podcastone.com and click on the survey banner. Thank you again. And we ended up on the terrace of his apartment at the San Remo Towers that he just bought. It was a triple X apartment, and we're looking out uh, over the Hudson River, and I turned to Steve. We're standing on the balcony. I said, Steve, I've thought about it. I'm, I'm not coming to Apple. He looked down for the longest time, and then he looked up at me and stared me straight in the eye, and he said, do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life, <laughs> or do you want to come with me and change the world? Welcome to the Forbes interview. I'm your host, Steve Bertoni. On this show, I'll do in-depth interviews with billionaires, entrepreneurs, and influencers. And support for Forbes interview comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. You're confident when it comes to your work and life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same confidence when it comes to refinancing your existing mortgage or buying a home. It lets you understand all the details so you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. Go to rocketmortgage.com slash Forbes. All right, everybody. Welcome to the show today. Very excited to have John Scully, who's a master CEO, marketer, executive extraordinaire, and entrepreneur. Um, he basically turbocharged Pepsi back in the 70s and 80s, then ran a little, com- ran a little company called Apple um, for, um, for a decade and has done a lot in between and after. So, John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephen. So let's start off. I want to talk about these last, almost these last couple of years with um, kind of the, the rise of Apple, the death of Steve Jobs, um, you know, he became an icon and that obviously I think put a spotlight on you too. Um, and I'd love to kind of describe what life's been like, the good, the bad, and the opportunities. Great. So uh, I knew Steve Jobs when he was 27 years old. And Steve Jobs 1.0 uh, was as inspirational and brilliant and creative as Steve Jobs 2.0 became. But he was still a young person who was developing uh, what his management style was going to be. And uh, he was absolutely self-confident that he was going to change the world. And as he would say, I'm going to put a dent in the universe. Mm -hmm. And he did, of course. But uh, Steve Jobs uh, 1.0 was still in deep learning mode. Mm -hmm. And the reason I was recruited to Apple was that Steve was the co-founder of Apple. He was the largest shareholder of Apple. He was the chairman of the board. But the board did not feel he was ready to become the CEO. So they would not appoint him as the CEO, but they gave him the authority to veto uh, someone that uh, he didn't want to see become the CEO. So you were the, uh, the, the famous, the adult in the room, so to speak. 
Well, I was recruited because they exhausted every <laughs> logical person in the tech industry to who could be a CEO of Apple because Steve turned them down. It was an amazing five months that I got to know Steve. And we ended up on the terrace of his apartment at the San Remo Towers that he just bought. It was a triple X apartment. And we're looking out uh, over the Hudson River. And I turned to Steve. We're standing on the balcony. I said, Steve, I've thought about it. I'm, I'm not coming to Apple. I said, I'll be an advisor. I'll do it for free. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're an amazingly brilliant person. I know you'll be successful, but uh, this isn't for me. What was it? What, what was the thing at first that made you not want to do it? Besides never having experience in software or Silicon Valley or in computers. Because I was in an environment that I understood. Yeah. Uh, we had recently passed Coca-Cola as the largest selling consumer packaged goods in the United States. And I had a you know, pretty clear idea of um, if I didn't end up being the, the CEO of PepsiCo, that you know there were other oppor- opportunities out there. And I love the East Coast. Uh, so... Steve is standing there with his blue jeans and black turtleneck sweater. Even yep. then, yep. he wore that. But in those days, he had jet black hair. Uh, his eyes were uh, dark, you know, pools that you'd look into, and, and uh, you know, it was mesmerizing. And he looked down for the longest time, and then he looked up at me and stared me straight in the eye. And he said, do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life? <laughs> or do you want to come with me and change the world? And I didn't give an answer different than what I said minutes earlier, but uh, a week later I was working at Apple. And that was Steve Jobs, that is um, amazing ability to find the right words and his personal charisma that he could literally uh, bend people's Mm -hmm. uh, answers. And I saw that over and over again. So that that one sentence that flipped you, that one sentence? Well, it, it, it haunted me. And it knocked the wind out of me at the at the moment. But uh, over the next several days, I thought about it. I said, you know, I wonder what I will have missed if I mm-hmm. if I don't uh, join Steve Jobs. And so, what had attracted Steve to me? Remember, I was not a computer engineer, yeah. but then neither was he. Mm-hmm. And what attracted uh, him to me was um, what we had done at, at Apple. Excuse me, at Pepsi, where when I was made marketing VP in 1970. We were outsold 10 to 1 in 50% of the country. So we weren't even really a serious national brand. We were a regional brand. And Coke was the most famous brand in the world yeah. at that time. So the insight we had was we said, you know, Coke owns reality. So we have to own perception because perception leads reality. And that led to a campaign called the Pepsi Challenge. Mm-hmm. And we said it's all about customer experience. And so in this case, we had uh, real customers. We started in San Antonio, Texas, with uh, a market where we were outsold 10 to 1. And people there had never had a thought in their mind about ever wanting to try a different soft drink than Coca-Cola. And yeah, down there, they call, they call all sort of Coke, right? It's kind of like, oh, what kind of Coke do you want? Kind yeah, of thing, right. right. So yeah, it's, it's really the brand is... The brand and the generic are the yeah. same thing. So uh, the Pepsi challenge was all about real people taking a taste test Blind, and then the reveal, uh, seeing what they had selected. Mm-hmm. And the most famous commercial uh, was one where it was a grandmother and a little girl uh, leaning over her shoulder, her granddaughter. And we had three cameras on it, uh, one on the granddaughter, one on the grandmother taking the taste test, and one on the, on the person administering the taste test. 
And as she went through the taste test, the little granddaughter is just sitting there with eyes like saucers, uh, watching her. And then there's the reveal, and the little girl spouts out, Grandma, you chose Pepsi. <laughs> and Grandma said, I guess I did. I must really like Pepsi better than Coke, and I've never had a Pepsi before in my life. Bang. That's all you need. And that was not only a fantastic commercial, uh, one of the best I was ever in- involved with, but... Uh, it drove Coca-Cola up the wall. <laughs> and they sued us. They said it was unfair okay. uh, marketing practices, and all that did was to generate more attention. Well, Steve loved that story because he said, I'm building a product uh, called Macintosh, and it was still um, over a year away. Mm-hmm. He said, it's all about experience for non-technical people to be able to do creative things. And at that time, nobody in Silicon Valley or anywhere else in high tech was talking about the idea that technology products should be sold as consumer mm-hmm. products, particularly sold around experience. And so Steve loved that. It was being sold as kind of business tools and almost yeah, B2B. Well, stuff. it was all about bits and bytes and mm-hmm. you know technology performance and things like that, which were interesting to other engineers, but yeah. that weren't particularly interesting to people who were non-technical. And that's what Steve wanted to do. He said he wanted to build bicycles for the mind. Mm-hmm for non-technical creative people to do amazing creative things that they, they never knew were possible. And he did. And that was the beginning of, of the dream that he later in Steve Jobs 2.0 uh, turned into the most valuable company in the world. That's incredible. And you mentioned before that he, when he mentioned that one sentence that turned, he said it haunted you, the, uh, do you want to just sell sugar water the rest of your life? When you were working for Pepsi, was there a sense of purpose in that? Did you feel, not guilty, but was it hard? Were you excited about selling soda? Or were you excited about the challenge of building a brand, the challenge of fighting Coke? Was there kind of, not a guilt, but were you like motivated to sell, sell that product versus selling you know, something that might be you know, healthier or better for you? To be honest, it never crossed our mind. Mm-hmm. Um, it was all about uh, competition and building the business, uh, being successful at it. But it was... Uh, so radically different than what I was to learn when I went to Apple. When I had been at Apple for just a few months and we're sitting around in the Macintosh engineering lab Mm -hmm. late at night, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, myself, Steve and Bill are talking about their noble cause, that they were going to change the world one person at a time. They were going to do it by creating tools for the mind. And I'm sitting there saying, I've never heard about business leaders talking about noble causes. You know, it never came up in any discussions we ever had when I was at Pepsi. So those, Pepsi was all about, obviously, sales and marketing. Pepsi was and, about yeah. market share. Yeah. And um, if we didn't improve market share, we were out. I mean, it was uh, a very uh, demanding culture. But by the way, not so different from any other you know, large, successful yeah, exactly. uh, East Coast corporate America company. So uh, my role was, was to uh, teach Steve Jobs about experience marketing, and we did it with the first launch commercial for, for the Macintosh uh, around the Super Bowl. And what Steve taught me uh, had even more impact on my life because he talked me about something he called zooming. 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 Zooming meant to Steve, zoom out, uh, look beyond the boundaries of the market or industry that you're in. Mm-hmm. See what's going on out there that may be converging towards your industry. And 
the example that became famous uh, in those days with Steve was desktop publishing. That Steve had studied at Reed College before he dropped out. He loved calligraphy. He loved fonts. Mm-hmm. And he was a designer at heart, even though he never trained as a designer. He had natural design instincts. And that was something that made a huge impression on his mind. And then he went to Xerox Palo Alto Research Center. Xerox had been an early investor in Mm -hmm. Apple. And he was given an invitation to come over and see what they were working on, uh, not far from Cupertino, where Apple was. And what he saw amazed him. These were experimental $80,000 engineering workstations, but they used a graphical user interface. And so Steve started to connect the dots. That was the mouse in the desktop. and Exactly, yeah. Yeah, the mouse, desktop, all the things we have taken for granted with personal computing. That all came out of Xerox. Mm. It didn't come from Apple. But Steve said, hey, I can adapt that graphic user interface. I can ad- make it do things like laser printing, which they were also working on at Xerox, that can print out these beautiful fonts. And if I can take Apple's sense of how you make really expensive products simple, this is Waz's mm-hmm. great contribution. Yeah. Uh, Waz figured out how to make $80,000 disk drives you know, for a few hundred dollars and things of that sort. Uh, so you combine those connecting the dots between those zoom out uh, perspective. And then Steve said, you have to zoom in because he would often recount that uh, simplification is the ultimate sophistication. Mm-hmm. And so he very, was constantly... Always very Zen of him. Right? Yes, yes, very influenced by Zen. And he would constantly say, yeah, we've got to reduce the number of steps. We've got to simplify, simplify, simplify. And it came back to his design principles. If you, Everything that Steve did um, was to look at things from a minimalist standpoint. And now you look at Apple today, decades later, those principles are still there. They're in the foundation of what we know today mm-hmm. of Apple and every one of the you know, incredible products uh, Steve came up with when I was at Apple. There were no digital cell phones. I mean, none of that stuff existed in the industry. But Steve took advantage of the World Wide Web and said, I'm going to make the iMac uh, the best way to connect to the web. Mm-hmm. So he didn't need a lot of software the way um, the, the Windows machines from uh, Intel and, and Microsoft did. Uh, he said, I'm just going to make the user experience, going back to the user experience, uh, so incredible that mm. this is the way everybody will want to connect to the World Wide Web. And he did this not just once, but he did it again a few years later when he came out with the iPod. Well, the MP3 players had been around for years. Yeah. Uh, they'd become a commodity uh, even before the iPod was created. So Steve creates, again, a beautiful design to a commodity product, but um, he had that extra brilliance where he said, you know, it's about the service that you attach to the product. And so he created iTunes. Mm -hmm. And iTunes was something that disrupted one of the most entrenched, powerful industries in the world, which was the music label industry, uh, where music had traditionally been sold in albums. And Steve said, no, I want to sell it by individual song. Yeah, he unbundled the whole thing. Unbundled the whole thing. And then with his brilliance, because he, he was also you know, a brilliant marketer, maybe the best ever, and when he came out to introduce the iPod, uh, he didn't say, here's a new powerful device that has lots of you know, songs. He came out and pulls this thing out of his pocket and says, how would you like to have a thousand songs <laughs> in your pocket? 
It was brilliant. And that was Steve Jobs. What did you learn from marketing from him and what might have he gleaned off of you for all those years? Well, what I learned from, from Steve was, was that when he became interested in something, he just absorbed it in uh, great detail. He wanted to know everything about it. Uh, Steve was, uh, at Pepsi, we used to call it uh, marketing as theater. Mm -hmm. And we would do it in front of our bottlers and put on a big show because we were trying to sign them up to programs for the following year. Steve took that idea much, much further than, than uh, I had ever done. And he made marketing as theater you know, one of the elements in terms of the experience. So, for example, when people would see Steve Jobs uh, at a Mac event mm -hmm. um, and it looks so natural and like it just was spontaneous, uh, I know because I uh, had watched him do this, he would rehearse over and over in great detail. It's sort of like um, you know, when a, a great basketball player uh, like Kobe Bryant used to tell me, he said, uh, John, I, I shoot a thousand baskets every day, yeah. every day. <laughs> you know, even when he was the best, he'd still go out and do it every day. Well, that, Steve Jobs was the same way. He just was relentless in the amount of preparation that he put into something. And when he was on stage, uh, ironically, he'd been very nervous beforehand. People yeah. don't realize that. <laughs> Barbara Streisand apparently is, is the same way. But as soon as he got out on stage, you know, he just came alive and he just made it seem so natural and he'd say oh and one more thing yeah. and then, of course that'd be the most important uh, part of the event and would he practice like in front of the you and the team or would he kind of just be in the mirror by himself every day going over well stuff? I don't know whether he did by himself because yeah. I wasn't there yeah. but but uh, I do know with with the team and, and uh, often he'd be screaming and mad at people and make them do it over again it wasn't you know done perfectly he was a perfectionist yeah. um so these were pretty, you know, uh, strenuous uh, preparation sessions before Steve had one of his big events. But they all, it all paid off in the end. It all paid off, yeah. And you've, you've had a fascinating career. And, you've, you know, you've went, you went from you know, big consumer products, Pepsi, to you know, high-end Apple. And then you've done a lot of telecom and now you're in entrepreneurship. You've mentored a ton of people. Now you're into healthcare and prescriptions. Uh, kind of take me back. How did you get into business to begin with? And how have you been able to adapt from soda to computers to prescriptions? What is the, how do you make the change? What's the challenge? And also, is there a thread that kind of connects all these things? Well, well, there is a thread. And it actually goes back to when I was a little kid. Uh, I wasn't interested in toys. I was interested in parts, mm -hmm. uh, electronic parts. And I used to um, build things from, you know, the early days I can remember. When I was five or six years old, I would everything from dry cell batteries and, and uh, nice switches and uh, little lights to um, taking radios apart. And when I got into my teens, I started um, buying secondhand television mm. sets. And I lived in New York City, and uh, I'd go down to Cortland Street, which is now where the World Trade Center yeah. is. And I would buy uh, secondhand radio equipment, and I would buy... Um, old televisions and I'd wire them up. I built experimental color televisions. Um, well, I, when I was a teenager, uh, I had a patent application for uh, one of the first single um, cathode ray gun television hmm. um, tubes and a bunch of stuff. So I was into electronics. Were you all self-taught? Would you like read magazines or tinker around? Oh, yeah. How, yeah. No, I, I read uh, every uh, technical magazine I could get my hands on. I was a 
ham radio operator, mm -hmm. uh, K2HEP, since I was 13. So I was very comfortable around electronics, but it was all analog electronics. Mm -hmm. uh, I was essentially a designer and a builder. Uh, I don't think I would have been a great engineer because when I take something apart and put it back together again, there are always parts left over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Engineers don't do that, did but designers do. Designers you, are looking for better ways to take things uh, away, take, put things together again. Did your parents, do you think you were crazy? Like, were your parents technical or was this kind of a whole out well, of left field? My father couldn't have been less technical. He was a, a, a Wall Street lawyer. Okay. And, uh, a different kind of He of was very theory. smart, incredibly bright man, but uh, he was uh, not... Uh, interested in technology. My mother's uh, father, my grandfather, uh, was an inventor, mm -hmm. and he, he loved uh, anything to do with you know, building and inventing, and, and he had a big influence on, on my life. So I was very influenced by that. My mother was an artist um, and designer, so I was influenced by her as well. What sort of things did your grandfather invent? Well, he uh, was part of the team that designed the first submarine. Wow. And uh, the one of the... Um, models that were built is still around uh it's in a museum uh over in liverpool in england where mm -hmm. he worked um my f mother's family are all from bermuda where i grew up okay and he uh did this back in the 1890s so uh, i would spend many hours with my grandfather in bermuda when i was uh, a young boy um, talking about inventions and how we could desalinate water and how we could remember Bermuda is a small island yes. that depends on rainwater for its drinking water. So to me, uh, design and I was a good at drawing uh, were important. When I went to university, I went to Brown University, mm -hmm. but I also did a co-terminal at RISD, Rhode Island School of Design. Uh, my big interest was uh, to become an industrial designer. And I worked in the summer as an industrial designer. Ended up going to the Graduate School of Architecture mm -hmm. after Brown at the University of Pennsylvania. But I switched from that over to Wharton Business School because I realized that um, to be a designer, you also had to be a business person. And I decided that architecture was not the best place for me to learn mm -hmm. industrial design. So I said, I'm going to go and learn about business. I didn't know anything about uh, business at that point. And... Ironically, uh, when I was at the University of Pennsylvania, I was um, working as a student when I was in grad school at the Management Science Institute for t two of the really outstanding professors at mm -hmm. Wharton Business School, uh, Russ Acoff, and um, we were building mathematical models uh, with things that were called Bayesian statistics. And... Uh, later, when I got to Pepsi, I was in the marketing research department, and mm -hmm. I was doing Markov chain analysis and and Monte Carlo game theory. Well, these things seemed like, you know, curiosities back in those days. Well, they're the fundamental building blocks of what we today call machine learning. Amazing. So it all goes, it all it's all connected. That, yeah. How'd you go from kind of being interested in design and architecture to marketing, um, especially at Pepsi? What what led you? What made that jump? Well, I always saw marketing through the eyes of a designer. And as a builder and a designer, uh, to me, when I thought about communications, if it was advertising or um, as I was thinking about building a brand, uh, building a brand to me is about um, uh, the customer experience. You mm -hmm. brand the customer experience. You just don't brand the product. And so it's everything 
where the brand represents uh, impact on the customer. So as a designer, because I had uh, worked as an industrial designer um, in the summers, when I got to Pepsi, I started designing the merchandising equipment. I helped design the first uh, two-liter plastic bottle, um, which was an interesting story because uh, the first assignment I was given when I was put in charge of marketing at Pepsi was to come up with a uh, 12-ounce glass bottle, returnable bottle, Mm -hmm. that could compete against Coca-Cola's famous uh, glass bottle. And every time Pepsi had tried to do this, they'd always infringed on the Coke design because the Coke bottle was perfect for holding in your hands. Mm -hmm. It's very iconic and it's hourglass shape and it vended well in a vending machine and so forth. Well, we went out and we conducted an in-home product use test where we took 550 homes, delivered uh, soft drinks to them each week of their choice. And by the end of nine weeks, we saw something really quite remarkable that we never had thought about when we designed the test. And that was no matter how much inventory was in the household inventory the week before, it was always empty the next week. And as we thought about that, we said, you know, why are we trying to design a little tiny glass bottle? What we should really be doing is designing bigger containers that can hold more ounces of fluid, of beverage, because that's where the money is. You can sell more, yeah. Yeah, so uh, that led to the creation of the two-liter plastic bottle. And since there was no merchandising equipment for two-liter plastic bottles, um, I worked uh, personally on designing merchandising equipment, off-shelf displays, busy coolers, Mm. things, things of this sort. We also took the two-liter plastic bottle and we put on it something that was brand new. It was just being launched, and it was called the Universal uh, Product Code, better known as the Barcode. Okay. And the reason we did that was that we were a store-door delivery system. We would deliver uh, soft drinks uh, every day to supermarkets with a truck, and the large chains did not have the information as to how much we, we or Coke were actually selling because they only track warehouse withdrawal products. So by putting the barcode on the two-liter plastic bottles, it gave the chains for the first time the way of measuring just how much soft drinks, and it just overwhelmed them because they had no mm-hmm. idea that soft drinks was such a large part of their, their sales. Out of that uh, came a marketing concept uh, of how we would tell the story. Remember, we're little tiny Pepsi competing yeah. with giant Coke. So our pitch became, we are your new bank, as we went to the large chains. Mm -hmm. And the chains were just starting to uh, uh, grow uh, back in those days in the 1970s. And the chain executives would look at me and they'd say, what do you mean, you're our new bank? I said, well, our records show, because we have a little barcode Mm -hmm. on on the two-liter bottle, that uh, you turn our product over five times before you have to pay us. So we're like a money machine for you. <laughs> and they said, you know, that makes sense. And now I step back and I say, gosh, what were we doing? Let's see. We were uh, selling you know, sugar uh, products to the young kids. You know, we were selling uh, with Frito-Lay uh, products that had high fat content. Yeah. And we were selling them in, in new packages that were made of plastic that are now a problem in, in terms of you know, how do we deal with the environment. And I said, wow, it never occurred to us when we were doing this. Um, and so I'm, I'm really pleased to see now that Coke and Pepsi are both trying to 
rethink the, the industries they're in. They're trying to get into mm -hmm. healthier drinks to lower the sugar rates and all those things. But I can tell you, having been in the middle of it all uh, back in the 1970s, it didn't occur to any of us in, in those industries. Yeah, now there's like a whole now sugar is the evil the evil thing. There's, they're saying there's conspiracies to have the sugar lobby blame carbs, not sugar. Is that is that what do you think about that? Like, do you do you agree with this evilness of sugar? Well, I don't know if I use the word evil, evil but, but I'm saying but, is but, that... but you know, uh, we know now yeah. uh, that uh, too much sugar is not good for you, and uh, particularly with kids. You know, you're you've seen so many different cycles, and you're a master brander. If you were starting a startup right now and launching a a, a new brand, what would you what would be your first steps these days? Now with you know social media and storytelling and just the whole disruption of all media. If you're doing a consumer product, what are the key things that you would focus on today? Well, the first thing I do is to recognize that uh, we live in a time today where customers are in control. Mm -hmm. So you say, what are the derivative effects of all of these amazing technologies, whether it's mobile phones or cloud computing or data analytics? The end result is that customers have more control, uh, particularly over product decisions, brand decisions, than they've ever had before. So... I would always start with what's a really big, juicy customer problem that needs to be solved. Mm -hmm. uh, just to go out and take a product and slap a, you know, a brand on it and try to do some cool advertising, that's really not, to me, great marketing. Mm -hmm. Great marketing is starting all the way back to, you know, what is the customer problem that we can solve in a better way? And I've often talked to uh, young students at, at business schools and technical universities about... Um, Forget about the business plan. And everyone sort of gives you a stare. Well, what do you mean? You're a business guy. Yeah. You're telling me to forget about the business plan. I say, yeah. The business plan is really just a budgeting exercise. It's basically starting with where you've been and then looking forward maybe a year and saying, so um, if I can set some goals to imp of improvement, then how do I allocate the resources mm -hmm. that are available to do that? And it becomes very political in most organizations. But if you start with a customer plan, and a customer plan, again, says, what's in it for the customer? What, what problem are you going to solve? Basically? What are you going to solve? And then how do you engage the customer? And how do you uh, monetize the customer? And how do you retain the customer? And how do you think about the customer's lifetime value? And you have all of your metrics around doing something for the customer. You'll end up making money. Now, look at Jeff Bezos mm -hmm. at, at Amazon. He didn't start out by saying, how much money can I make selling books and then selling everything? Um, he starts out by saying, what's in it for the customer? What customer problem that I can solve? And I've heard Jeff say, uh, show me an industry that's got, got high profit margins, yep. and I'll show you a, an opportunity that can ch be changed the whole industry itself. And he's done it time and time again, and probably will continue to do that yeah. industry by industry. He's in every. He's in everything. He's, like he's in, in every, everything. Every part of my house is is. Yeah. Bezos so so I, I say of all the CEOs out there, I, I admire Jeff Bezos the most mm -hmm. uh, because he's not only able to run a great business, but he's able to create businesses. And he always starts with the customer. It's always about the customer plan. Thanks for listening to the Forbes interview with your host, Steve Bertoni, interviewing guest John Scully. Make sure to come back for the conclusion in part two of the Forbes interview. That's it for this episode of the Forbes interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. 
Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with a question or comment, please reach us at interview at podcastone.com. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on what you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals during our spring Black Friday sale, like 19-ounce Bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for $10. And pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch in store only for just $10. Whatever's on your list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417 while supplies last. Not valid in Alaska or Hawaii. Scott's offer valid in store only. See store for details, U.S. only. At the border. I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.